It's a time for transformation. We need disruption to end the destruction. The Sustainable Hour. For a green, clean, sustainable Geelong. The Sustainable Hour. Welcome to the Sustainable Hour. We're broadcasting from the land of the Wadawurrung people. We pay tribute to the elders, past, present, and those that earn that honour in the future. We acknowledge that we cannot hope to have climate justice without justice for our First Nations people. They have such a depth of ancient wisdom that is going to be very helpful for us as we navigate the climate crisis that is existing right now. And we hope that we're wise enough to realise that. Our research shows that if Australians invest in smart solar and electrification for their households, they could eliminate emissions in the household economy and households could be saving around three to $5,000 a year by about 2030. And Australia, in a way, is already a leader because we are the world's leading rooftop solar nation with about 3.4 million homes generating power already. So in some ways, we've already started the electrification journey. Heat pumps, for example, for heating are already a better investment than gas heaters. And about the middle of this decade, electric vehicles will be cheaper to buy and operate than just staying with a petrol car. So it all becomes economic quite soon. For the average household in Australia, it becomes break-even about the middle of the decade and cash positive by about the end of the decade. So the money is definitely behind electrifying and that's why a, a lot of people are starting to do this themselves, putting in efficient electric appliances mm. for heating and for hot water. Dan Cass, Executive Director of Rewiring Australia, who explained this on the ABC News recently. And yeah, the money is behind it. The story is changing quickly now because renewables are not only cleaner, better and safer, they are saving us money. And because we need innovative green business ideas, Climate Launchpad has now partnered with the city of Greater Geelong to attract breakthrough clean technology ideas from the Geelong region into their global program. What they want to do is to help aspiring innovators and entrepreneurs with growing their ideas. So in a media release we hear now Geelong's mayor, he's quoted as saying, Geelong's transformation to a clever and creative city will be driven by entrepreneurs that pursue environmentally responsible ideas. We need every single tool we possibly have at our disposal to address the climate crisis. A fantastic way to do that is really terrific initiatives that rely on tech. So one question we often ask ourselves at Climate Kick is how do you create systems change? Climate Launchpad acts as an intervention to create pipeline green businesses to build a clean tech market within Australia. Innovation happens in Australia, but we're really, really bad at commercialisation. And the barriers to that are funding and people. Climate Kick and programs similar to it 
they train the people. I came into this competition with just an idea. The opportunity and space to actually have mentoring and grow that idea into something that might really work. I think it's a great program where you get an opportunity to be able to work with some great mentors. It let me think about our product in a climate sense. It's also exciting, you just learn so much. No, really excited about going to the next level. A friendly, safe environment to be in, it's, it's really good. The process, as much as anything, has really helped bring this to fruition. I wish I had money, I would invest in them myself. They were so good. Climate entrepreneurship plays a really important role in the transition to net zero. But I think one of the things that it can do, which is magical, is create jobs where we create wealth, where we create a better society. It, it generates a kind of active hope, which is critical to lifting our ambition about climate change. At KIC, we also like to say that our innovation programs are a space for innovators and climate entrepreneurs to really turn their deep expertise and passion into action and impact. We need as many bright, innovative minds to work together and collaborate together and share and create. And we're ready to connect you to a global community of innovators, investors, of mentors, of trainers, we can't wait to meet you and make sure we find solutions to address our climate emergency. Story change. And in a similar spirit of optimism on Saturday, the New Daily put out a really good article, I think, about why young people should remain optimistic and focus on reshaping the future. The headline went, Hey, Generation said, why so glum? It's your planet, so fix it. And Generation said that's the kids who are teenagers and in their early 20s now. It was written by Simon Kustenmacher, who's running a series in the New Daily called The Stats Guy. And he's a geographer based in Melbourne, researching demographics and societal trends and so on. And he wrote, in a hundred years, humanity will be smaller, richer, healthier, and run a more sustainable economy. And ecosystems will recover at scale. As we improve our society and planet, we often step sideways, we sometimes even step backwards too. But ultimately, we're moving forwards. I know it doesn't always feel that way as we see suffering and destruction around us, but I want our young people to understand that the world is theirs for the taking, for reshaping and for re-greening. And with those words, Colin Market, OAM, it's your planet too. So uh, how's it going out there oh. with the fixing of it? And I, I'm aware that Saturday, 1st of April, was April Fool's Day. But I don't think Simon here put this message out as an April Fool's story. Unless, of course, if it was for the fossil fools. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so either. We are, well, we're the, the pace of change is, is picking up, I think, Mick. Our global roundup this week begins once again in New York at the United Nations, where a resolution was proposed by Vanuatu for the UN International Court of Justice to provide an advisory option on the legal responsibility to fight the climate crisis. Vanuatu, which is a tiny, tiny community when you look at it, they argued that climate change has become a human rights issue for Pacific Islanders. And their proposal was adopted in what is now being called a landmark resolution to establish for the first time each country's obligations to address the climate crisis and establish the consequences of inaction. What this means in essence is that there is now a legal obligation 
for countries to do what they have committed to in non-binding treaties such as the Paris Climate Accord and establish the framework for those countries who fail to do to be challenged through litigation. What was interesting from our point of view was that Australia joined in more than 120 nations as a co-sponsor of Vanuatu's resolution. And the world's two largest climate polluters, that's the US and China, did not express support, but they didn't object either, meaning that the measure passed by consensus. The resolution came a week after the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report called for all countries to stop all funding for coal and phase out its use by 2030 in developed nations. That's us, and we voted for it. Now, Pakistan, where the influential Pakistani author Fatima Bhutto wrote this week that saving the planet was the greatest feminist cause of today. This was published in an essay for the Guardian newspaper in the UK, where she pointed to an aspect of climate justice that has not received the attention that it deserves. That's gender. As the climate crisis accelerates, she wrote, worldwide it's women and girls who increasingly bear the brunt of its impacts, including increased poverty, displacement and sexual violence. A fact that the UN International Planet on Climate Change scarcely referenced in last week's landmark report. She noted that 80% of the people who are displaced by climate impacts are women and girls. The crisis will affect women more than everything else in the world, more than abortion rollbacks, more than oppressive governments, more than lower pay grades, she said. Referencing the super floods that submerged a third of Pakistan last year, Bhutto included statistics that showed that girls and women's wildly disproportionate suffering, with nearly 700,000 pregnant women in Pakistan lacking the maternal health care or any kind of medical health care at all during the floods, and rapid deterioration in access to hygiene caused an estimated 70% of women in those flooded regions to suffer urinary tract infections. It's something that we don't think about, but it's certainly an issue. In a different but related story from the US, where a recent report showed that fewer women were buying electric vehicles, in part because they fear for their safety at public charging stations which are often located in garages and other poorly lit places. Also from the US last week came an explanation why the state of Kentucky ranks dead last of all of the US states in legislation to combat climate change. The state has a big coal industry which contributes heavily to governments and political parties. And this is a direct quote from one of those legislators, Republican Richard White, who said in Parliament that when God created this earth, he provided us with natural resources and coal is one of them. He added that God intended coal for people to make a living to survive in this world. Well, the winds of change are swirling around Kentucky at the moment because a second report showed that the state has the highest power prices in the US. And there was now 
looking to catch up with the other states with solar and wind generation. Now to Queensland, where an agreement was signed to produce Australia's first ethanol biofuel refinery to produce sustainable aviation fuel. The parties were a new partnership between Qantas, Airbus and the Queensland government. Bioenergy company Jet Zero Australia and a sustainable aviation fuel technology group Landsjet will develop the facility which will convert agricultural byproducts including sugarcane, into sustainable aviation fuel. Construction of the site is expected to start next year, and the companies announced yesterday uh, that will be made from crops, household waste, animal fat, and other biomass. And finally, news from the world's greenest sports club, Forest Green Rovers, who played Portsmouth at the weekend and lost 1-0. That means they're now almost certain to be relegated back to the English second division, which they left at the end of last year when they won promotion. The Forest Green Rovers women's team didn't play at the weekend because there are only 10 teams in their league and they're currently third. But they're on a hot run uh, of form. When they next play, it's against Warminster Town Ladies on April the 16th. We'll let you know the score. The last time they played Warminster, they won 9-0. So at least we'll have a bit of good news on that report. And that's my roundup for the week. Listen to our sustainable hour for the future. You'd have to be a million fish dead within, what, a kilometre of the river? This is the fourth time in six years that mass amounts of fish have been killed in the area. But experts say this time around it's worse than ever. Our guest today is Rob McBride, and he's uh, very appropriately following that little clip about the fish kill in the Murray-Darling system. Rob's a fifth-generation farmer, and for 10 years now, he's been fighting to fix the situation where we don't continually get fish kill after fish kill after fish kill, and then inquiries which say the same thing, and then another fish kill because actions aren't taken, the appropriate actions aren't taken. So, Rob, thanks for coming on. You've been very, you're a very, very busy man running a farm and also protecting the river. Welcome to the Sustainable Hour. Thank you very, very much indeed. And I'd firstly like to uh, offer my respects, past, present and future, to the elders of the Bakinji Nation in which Tolano Station's on. So uh, we deal very closely with Uncle Badger Bates and the community and they must feel 10 times more pain to watch their river system collapse. Bakinji are the people of the Barker. So whenever I refer to the Darling in future, I always mention the Darling Barker because I hope during my lifetime that it returns to the name that it should be, which is the Barker River. It was that for 50,000 years, and in the last 200, a hell of a lot of damage has been done. But um, certainly over the last 10 years, terrible destruction of the environment. And um, ladies and gentlemen, um, last week we had the worst in 200-year event, and then the same week we had the best. Um, now, on the Murray... That's a regulated system, and for each litre of water you take out, it's monitored and you've, you're under the scrutiny of what's going on. That wasn't the case on the Darling Barker, and effectively it's a 3,800-kilometre river um, that starts 
basically seven tributaries in the north, um, south part of Queensland, but seven tributaries form the Darling Barker and it comes through to Menindee, uh, which has a lake system four times bigger than Sydney Harbour. Then it goes to Wentworth and down into South Australia. The worst criminals in Australian history found their way up the Darling Barker over the last few decades. What the criminals understood is that there are no laws in New South Wales. And the problem is the river system travels through six states and territories in Australia. So you had the perfect storm because you knew you could get away with murder. And effectively, these fish kills are a direct result of the man-made destruction of the river system. Because up until now, in New South Wales and Queensland, you can steal $20 million worth of water per year and you get a $50,000 fine. Um, say that again, you can steal hundreds of millions of dollars and you get a $50,000 fine and a slap over the wrists. This system has been destroyed. I'll, I'll pick the last 10 years because that's where the real criminals have been working over time. Um, in Queensland and New South Wales, because we started as a federation, federation meant that the states had certain rights. And basically back in 1994, the Murray-Darling Basin plan was put together to work together as states and territories to work honestly together. That was good in theory, but then the cotton industry especially and the National Party took over water. So if you look over the last 10 years, ladies and gentlemen, the National Party, which is the cotton industry, have controlled water both state and federally. Um, this is no mistake. This is organised crime and it is effectively under the Murray-Darling Basin the authority was set up some years back. It wasn't for the benefit of the, um, the river. It was effectively to destroy the plan. The plan had been put together by the states to work together in conjunction with each other and effectively the National Party and the cotton industry wanted it gone. So they set up this board, the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, which has done everything it can to destroy the river systems and get away with it. Can I give you some examples, please, of how you as taxpayers have given $8 billion over the last few years to the cotton industry to prostitute the river more. They kept the money and kept the water. That's why Barnaby Joyce and the National Party in New South Wales wanted to control water because you as taxpayers have paid for their man-made dams and effectively the destruction of the river system. And um, how it was normalised in the press last week when 30 million fish died. And I'll, I'll send the gents a few pictures of me standing in 30 million fish. They're all Australian natives. And to allow it to get through the press, and that's why your, you know, your sustainable hour gets the truth out to the public. It was glossed over. Uh, they said, oh, look, it's a natural event. Where in history on the planet has 30 million fish died over 30 kilometres and it's been normalised as, well, that's just nature? Um, it is far from nature. This is the destruction of the ecosystem. It is collapsing. I guess it goes back to the fact that sustainability is what the river system of Barkindji worked with the rivers for the last 50 to 60,000 years. People forget the Bawarana fish trap is probably the oldest man-made structure on the planet. And it was a fish trap to catch fish in Bawarana on the Darling Barker. 
Um, so the Barkindji knew about the fish in the river and they respected the ecology of the river. The Menindee Lakes are four times bigger than Sydney Harbour, 9.6 metres in depth when it's too supercharged, and it's got about eight years' supply of water. What the criminals in the New South Wales, and I do use the word criminals in New South Wales government over the last decade, has tried to destroy the Menindee Lakes and the integrity of the lakes because they want water in their man-made lakes up north. Let's just look at last year as an example. There's a term called floodplain harvesting. You know, when you think of the word harvesting, it must mean you plant a seed and you reap the rewards. But this isn't what's happening in the northern basin. What is happening is people are setting up barriers. They're destroying the ecology across the river and across the floodplains, and they put huge dams in to stop the water from actually getting into the river system, and they call that floodplain harvesting. You were talking about basically the situation that was put in place by the Liberal National Government federally and backed by the uh, New South Wales government. Both of those have changed over the course of the last three months. And have you noticed anything changing? It's amazing how Chris Minns, Premier of New South Wales, was out within three days of being sworn in. And I caught up with him last week in Menindee. Uh, look, massively. We are now hunting rather than being hunted. And, and it, this is the best time in Australian history for this river. You know, we talked about the worst in the, you know, 200 years was the fish kills. I mean, 30 kilometres, 30 million fish died. But that same week, you had the Premier of New South Wales. He'd only been sworn in two days, but Chris brought out his Water Minister, Rose Jackson, and his Environmental Minister, Penny Sharp, and Roy Butler, our sitting member in Barwon, we have had the biggest transition in the last three to four months in Australia's history in water. Can I just say to ladies and gentlemen, um, I have been had more death threats and warm dinners over the last 10 years, um, especially over the last five when I put my head up and started defending the river. We've had the National Party come out on a number of occasions and effectively say, normalise the issues and say everything's okay when clearly it wasn't. The greatest week in week and a half in the river system has been the last week when Chris Minns brought out the three of the four most powerful people in New South Wales uh, in their government and he takes this seriously. I guess I've been working with Chris for seven or eight years now. He came out to my station about seven years ago and uh, he was learning about his water portfolio and what was happening down our river system and he spent the next seven years learning more and more. So I, for the first time in the last decade, you've caught me smiling because I really, really believe now this river system has a chance. It's got to do investigations. Um, all we want is science and technology to show the people of Australia the facts. But as late as last week, you had a gloss over 30 million fish, the biggest probably fish killing in the planet's history, it was glossed over by the press by saying, oh, it's deoxygenated water. So if I can, I'll just get to the point. Yes, it was deoxygenated water. So what happened is algae happens naturally in the river system, but there was a massive buildup. And effectively, instead of having 5% oxygen, it went down to half a percent and 30 million bony brim died. The question has to be, why did that event take place? Now, it was glossed over by the press by saying, look, that's just nature. That's what nature does. No, 
Nature does not give up 30 million fish for no reason. What we need to ask is what pollutants are coming down that river system? What superphosphates are coming out of those man-made lakes? I talked about floodplain harvesting. Now, a lot of those man-made dams had some water in them before the floods were coming, but they were opened up. So not only deoxygenated waters full of superphosphates and God knows how many chemicals, as you know, up to seven chemicals go into your cotton crops. All this was released into the system and all that comes down the river system. And effectively in New South Wales, even though there's two water departments taking water samples, no testing of residues of chemicals or superphosphates are done in the state of New South Wales, which just shows you how powerful the criminals who are killing the river system. And, and I do use the word criminal, and I, I know that's a word that shouldn't be used, but when you intentionally destroy an ecosystem and the First Nations throughout the system and every sustainable farmer and irrigator, again, I'm sorry for being so bombastic, but the Murray-Darling-Barker Basin produces $38 billion of food and fibre. And over the last decade, you've sacrificed all that for a $5 billion cotton crop. Uh, cotton's been the cancer of the river system over the last decades, but over the last, especially the last decade, they have taken as much water, both legally and illegally, as they possibly can. Two questions for you, yep. Rob. The first one is that you're really trying to roll back 10 years of political interference. Won't that take a long time as well, possibly another 10 years? And the other question is that water and all of its pollutants that you were pointing out there eventually winds up in South Australia, where it's Adelaide's drinking water. Surely it's tested there. The problem is the, the dilution with the flood. and that, So I'll answer the first question first. As far as Will it take 10 years? No. What we need is investigations and science because that's all we've done. Remember, over the last 10 years, when the wool industry fell over a decade or so ago, probably two decades ago, the farmers actually took off their little suits and went back to work. The cotton industry grabbed the suits and said, we're National Party, trust us. They weren't the National Party. They weren't protecting farmers. They are protecting the cotton industry and the big corporates. So, that's the past. But it, now with the laws, what we do in New South Wales and also federally, we will start to do proper investigations into the science. Give you an example. Up until last week, week of the election in New South Wales, so four times in the upper house in New South Wales last year, uh, floodplain harvesting was disallowed. Four times. So two weeks before the election, the government ran in the lower house again to legalise it and got passed in the lower house, but they started gazetting it. So they started issuing licence on the Namoy River system with no science, not been approved by the upper house, while you've got a federal government under Tanya Plebizek trying to buy back water licences, you've got New South Wales government issuing them. And the science behind the New South Wales government issuing more licences are, oh, oh, the cotton industry said it was a good idea. Now, under the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, they know within the next 10 years, 30% less water is going to come down the catchment. What are we doing destroying $38 billion of food and fibre for a $5 billion cotton industry that we don't need and is potentially totally unsustainable putting residues back into our river system? And 
it is running unmonitored. So we can, within a year or so, we can start to get the criminals who have stolen massive amounts of water. They need to be in jail. Um, you can steal $10 million worth of water per year and get a $50,000 fine. A case last week, dating back from 2016, one of the big irrigators, he got a $480,000 fine last week and he's going to go to the High Court to appeal it. That's nothing. The amount of water that he stole, you know, we're talking 10, 20 million a year. So until the crime is given this proper respect that it is, because if I'm, if I'm a bank robber and I go into a bank and steal $20 million of money, I go into jail for about 10 years and you print money again, it's okay, we can make some more of it. When you destroy an ecosystem and you lead to the deaths of tens of millions of fish, the increase in suicide rates of the Barkindji along the river system, when honest farmers and irrigators and sustainable farmers and irrigators are being pushed out of the industry like the dairy industry, then you've got to ask questions as to, and, and also you're affecting your own children's future. It's not only this generation, but it's the generations to come. You are doing irreparable damage deliberately to the ecosystem, and you should pay the price of jail time. So once we bring some of the National Party elite to ICAC or court, they will sing like canaries. And once they start singing like canaries, the whole facade of the Northern Basin of the Darling Barker will collapse. Rob, yep. where, do, where does the rice industry fit in with this? The rice industry has been along the, uh, the, the Murray for some time, since the 1960s. It's the fact that if you take every litre of water and pay the same market rate as anybody in a city or a town and you want to grow rice and it's profitable, then you do that. But when you take – so the rice industry is really under the pump and is it sustainable? And certainly, you look over the last three years, the almond industry on the Murray-Darling, especially in the Murray, has exploded to a couple of hundred thousand acres. Now, each almond is 9 to 15 litres of water per almond. Now, that is totally unsustainable. So we've got industries that have no future on the river. There's no way... If the cotton industry want to do dry land farming like in Egypt, America, uh, Turkey, fine. There's some land up there, dry land farming, be like me, have a crack, good luck to you. But when you steal a river system, because that's the thing, this outback of Australia is so well suited for growing. If you add water to our environment, which is sunny probably 365 days a year, you're going to grow amazing crops. And that's all the cotton industry have done. They've gone up the catchment. There's seven tributaries that form the Darling Barker. So that comes down and then the Murray comes down. All they've done is cut off the fingers of the tributaries and said, we found water under floodplate harvesting. You mentioned about pollutants coming down the river. Exactly right. Um, but that's why the issue is, is that they knew that a flood was coming you know, it wasn't quite the 56 flood, but it was a hell of a flood. So you can release contaminants and pollutants into the river system and it's going to be diluted to such a large degree. 
but compatriots that I can put you in contact with on the Murray have been doing a lot of research over the last three to five years, and they believe in the next six months they will have enough information to bring to the public to prove beyond any shadow of a doubt that there has been covers been covering up, government's officials have covered up sustainable amounts of residues within the system that could cause human suffering. Give you one example. Um, at Griffiths, New South Wales, you've now got seven times the national average of motor neuron disease. Now, um, Helen Dalton, when she came to power about three years ago, so she's a sitting member for Murray, now independent, was Shooters and Fishers, asked for a million dollars for the New South Wales government to do investigations. It was rejected. She wasn't given the money. But what people need to understand that New South Wales Water has been doing most of the covering up together with the Murray-Darling Basin Authority. But please, ladies and gentlemen, do understand there is some very bad people in the New South Wales Department of Water that are not acting in the best interest of the river, certainly not acting in the best interest of the people of New South Wales, but they're political puppets in the Northern Basin. Corruption is endemic in the river system. And I'd, I'd use the example of the 1930s with Al Capone Chicago is nothing compared to what's happened on your river system over the last few decades and especially in the last decade. There's wholesale corruption, corruption of the river and corruption of senior public servants. And that's why we've called for a, a royal commission and that's really what we need because if I'm a politician and I answer your question, Tony, I can lie like hell to you and I get away with it because I can just say I didn't know or I'm a politician, I'm in parliament and, and I've got political privilege to, to lie. But under a under royal commission basis, you can't lie to a royal commissioner. I'll show you a picture. I'll send a few pictures so you can screenshot them in. Uh, we had a South Australian royal commission going back about three years ago, uh, four years ago, and uh, Jay Weatherall, the Premier of South Australia, put together. We had Brett Walker and Richard Beasley, and we almost had the bad guys. It went to an election. So Brett Walker, who was doing the Royal Commission, um, he said, look, I want the New South Wales Water Department to attend and also the um, Murray-Darling Basin Authority to attend. And Scott Morrison intervened saying, you have to go to the High Court to get them. And he said, but a Royal Commission's a Royal Commission. It's not about states. It's about a Royal Commission. Anyway, Brett Walker said, fine, I'll take it to the High Court. There's no problems. Um, unfortunately, there was a state election and the first time in 25 years the Labor Party got thrown out in South Australia and the South Australian government, the Liberals, within 24 hours shut down a Royal Commission that had been going for eight months saying we can't afford it. Now, given that the whole Royal Commission spent $5 million, given that 70% of jobs in South Australia rely on some way in water coming down the river system, also, that 40% of your water supply comes down the river system. Aren't you slightly concerned? And why would the Liberal Party shut down the Royal Commission? It just shows you how complicit the Liberal Party has been to allow the National Party, both state and federally, to control the water space. And effectively, it's been a bully boy tactic by the cotton industry to say to the Liberal Party, well, we'll keep you in power as long as you unfettered allow us to destroy the river systems to whatever extent. So to give you some idea, you know, you said 10 years of terrible times, 10 years to get out now. When we start making science 
integrity and technology at the forefront, um, then um, it's going to be a different time. There was one gentleman um, at the South Australian Royal Commission who gave evidence who was working for the CSIRO and a gentleman came up to him behind him one time when he was working, pretty much said, do you like your job? And he said, yeah, I like my job. Why? He said, do you want to keep your job? And he said, well, I work for the government of Australia, so that's not under question. The particular individual came from the Murray-Darling Basin Authority and said, well, you've got to go on to water efficiency programs of cotton in the Northern Basin. That's your research project going forward. And he, the gentleman said, well, hang on, what do you mean? I, I, I do what I want, you know, do with what my department tells me to do. And this was the bully boy tactics of the, the Murray-Darling Basin Authority stopping science and proper research into the river system that the guy got put on a project to work out how cotton saves 5% more water. Um, ladies and gentlemen, this is just, this is organised crime like we've never seen it in Australia. And it really is, once we get the first politician and the first big irrigator to jail, and people think that's stupid, we're not even going to get them to jail. Yes, we can. Uh, there's been satellite pictures of the water theft over the last two decades. So when you find somebody's stolen water, why are we only saying you've stolen $20 million of water this year? Why don't we look at those satellite features over the last 10 years and said, well, you've been doing this for 10 years, so you've stolen $200 million worth of water. Take back the land, take back the water licences and throw the criminals in jail because that's all they are. They are common thugs, meatheads and criminals. And uh, um, I was at a function for water at the University of New South Wales about a year ago. And I'm just sitting in the crowd. And I'm just sitting in the crowd and my daughter was speaking. Kate McBride was speaking at the front there. Anyway, after the session ends, um, Cotton Australia was there saying how it wasn't a cotton bash, which it wasn't. It was just trying to find solutions. And I have a, a, a lady walks up to me with a card, which I still have right here beside me. She was communications manager, stakeholder engagement, Cotton Australia. She shoved this into my face and said, you stop everything you're doing or we're going to destroy you, your family and your business. Do you understand? Whoa. That is the – and I've got a card still here. That is the way in which the persona of cotton to the public is one thing and the way they've treated me on tens and numerous occasions, threats are standard practice when the radios aren't on. You can't imagine some, a six-foot-seven – Scotsman or oh, man with Scots heritage uh, being intimidated by that too much. I think I think it would just fire you up. Would I, that be true? I, I, Irish, Irish, and I, uh, Scottish and Irish are the best of both worlds. But yeah, no, I just took a card and said thank you very much. Lovely to see you. Look, seriously, I've been fighting for ten years, and if I hopefully if I hadn't worked if I don't work so closely with the First Nations, they could have got me on that. If I'd stolen water, they could have got me on that. If I was a bad farmer, they could have got me on that. Um, just before the last election, it was quite funny. Well, sorry, previous last election, the sitting member, I won't mention his name, from Murray came up to me and he said, uh, Rob, uh, two day, three days after the election, Gladys said, whatever you want, you can have. Just leave us alone. Missing eyes wide open, watching news and open is not true. Seeing all the ice caps melting, polar bears dying, what should we do? Baby, baby, I feel crazy. I 
grow on your farm sheep cattle and carbon credits so, so you need the water for irrigation no so we only take out uh we're entitled to take out three inches but we take out a two inch pipe for stock and domestic purposes so that's other than washing ourselves we run the water out to troughs for our sheep goats and a very small number of cattle so yeah no no i i, I don't believe the Darling Barker is too fragile an ecosystem to crop. If you want to do dry land cropping, I think it's ludicrous, but if you want to do it, do it. But I really don't think cropping is sustainable. And yet in the early days, um, Tolano set up in 1851, we've got some pipes, the Chafee brothers who came up from um, Canada, um, they brought irrigation, they set up Renmark and Mildura. They were given those two land grants from Victoria and South Australia. Uh, they own Tolano. So we've probably got the oldest pipe out of, the Darling Barker for irrigation, but it was only for, you know, fodder and things like that. Uh, but no, look, the Darling Barker is too fragile. There should be no irrigation going untapped out of that irrigation system and private dams are uh, an, an absurdity. Um, the argument that the bad guys say is mini lakes are a waste of time. And remember, up until last week, you had the New South Wales government at the time, the New South Wales Liberal National Party, saying they only wanted to retain 195 gigs of water. To give you, ladies and gentlemen, some idea, that's basically a month's supply of water in a lake system that can control eight to nine years' supply of water. 
Now, and also when you first saw the first fish kill, that was not about dry seasons. That was about total mismanagement that had been undertaken. The Menindee Lakes had been drained twice in 2017 and 2019. They'd been drained twice in four years for no apparent reason. The second time, the Murray was in flood. What the cotton industry wanted, I can say, I hope and I pray to God, wanted, uh, was to kill the Menindee Lakes and use it all in their private dams. For your listeners, there's 142 species of bird life come from all around the world to the Menindee Lakes. More bird life comes from around the world to Menindee Lakes than they do to Kakadu in the Northern Territory. It's an amazing ecosystem. The Barkindji have been there between 50 and 60,000 years. The Murray Cod, a mate and I were standing in the river about three or four years ago and 16 million people saw us hold the remains, and I'll show you a picture of the holding the remains of the, the poor dead cod that was probably 80 years old. Um, the world knows more about this than Australia does, and, and that just shows you how complicit the press is. And, and might I say, I know a number of the people within the press corps who've gained a large amount of money out of water and they would not want it to become public, and I won't mention names, that they would not want it to become public as to the amount of money they made and what their tie was to the river system before you made your big pile of money. And it's also in political parties federally as well, and that's why we haven't had a, a federal royal commission. If I give you all a big pile of money for nothing, let's say you get $20 million for nothing, do you keep your mouth shut? about bringing up the whole issue of rivers and sustainability of rivers and these fish kills. That's why Channel 9 and Channel 7, you know, with these fish kills, haven't done much reporting on it, have they? they just underneath the radar. And um, it's pretty sad. Uh, Miriam Margulies, who uh, hopefully you all know, she did a series recently across Australia and she was at Tolano for three days and uh, she did a, a session with me pertaining to the water and also with Kate and also Buckingham Elders, and one day before the program went to air, the producer rang me up saying, oh, we've got to withdraw it. And I said, oh, fair enough, why? Oh, Miriam didn't look her best. And I said, oh, okay. And, um, and also, Australia's too dumb to understand water within seven minutes. Um, needless, I asked her, well, hang on, um, Tanya Plevisek's just come to power and she's just said there's a lot of criminals in the water space. Wasn't that what we were saying on this program? Anyway, I was contacting Miriam last night and she's going to put a little video together from us. She's in Tuscany at the moment because she understood how important this river system is. So she's going to put a little uh, video together for me so I can put it out to Australians because she's got a pretty big following and she understood very much how important these rivers are. So even in Channel 2, the whole issue of water has, since Ida Buttrose has been taken over, it seems to be water isn't as important an issue as it was before Ida Buttrose got to be in charge of ABC. And I, I also asked about the footage. I said, well, can I just have the footage from the ABC because you've thrown it in the bin, which is, well, you know, you've stored it away. Why don't we just put it on our site to show fellow Australians what questions Miriam was asking and what we were saying? And they've refused to release the footage. Mm. So they bury bury the realities of what's going on around, and it's pretty sad. Yep. Speaking of the media, I did notice your daughter was on the project, and uh, I was very impressed with the way that she was talking about, you know, how it affects people, the local people, when something like this happens. 
We've been so let down. I mean, the locals have been wading around in flood water for recent months. Um, you know, we've been cleaning out bloody people's houses um, from floodwaters, and now to experience this, it's just one extreme to another. And our community of Menindee keeps getting put on the map for these horrible disasters. And we just need people to listen to the community, come out, understand what's going on, and make sure this never happens again. Because I said in 2019 that I pray I never have to see this again. The mass fish kills, and here we are, and it's 10 times worse, and I'm seeing it again only a few years later you can tell that she's she's at tears uh, it's broken me as a human being i'm a broken man chris mins is a good friend and 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 rose jackson i should have spoken the other day and i was just beside myself it's broken me you know it's, it's bad enough we had five years of drought that happens uh, but to be involved in these fish kills watching the ecology collapse i'm a shattered man from what i was before the first fish kill i I believe governments were there to protect you and the rivers were there as part of nature and, and, and I believe that there's good people in the world. Um, over the last five years, I've seen how bad and how self-centred and how vicious people are who have no respect for any other human being. Barkinji, example, um, they're an amazing race of first Australians and suicide rates go up you know the river is everything to them and like kate said the river is everything to all of us and to watch you know uh, seriously if you'd asked me to be left on the somme battlefield or see what i've seen over the last five years give me a gun and put me on the somme battlefield at least there was some way of escaping whether it be through death or be through be through you know the war being over there was a way to get home and get away from this but when you live on the Darling Barker, you see it every day. You see the ecosystem collapse. I'm a suburban person and I really, I, I've seen all of the footage of all of those dead fish and nobody has explained, at least not on the news broadcast that I've seen, how they are cleared out. Are they all bulldozed out and then become <laughs> fertiliser? Are they flushed out? What happens to all of those dead fish in order to get the river back to normal again? Theoretically, um, they'll scoop up probably as many as they can in nets, which is probably 60 to 70%, and they just dig a hole and put them in. But, again, if you go to our little Tolano Station Facebook page, you'll see one of the neighbours today. There's probably, you know, 100,000 fish just in one bob dead floating down the river through his place. So we'll get that in the next three or four weeks it'll take to float down to Tolano and yeah we get that and, and it's 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 also what's underneath the water so obviously fish float for a few days and then they drop down underneath so that's the water that you're drinking out of your tap in Adelaide good luck on that one um yes you can filter it and you can refilter it but at the end of the day and also all the native species remember People have got to remember the Menindee Lakes, four times bigger than Sydney Harbour, 80% of the perch and golden perch of the whole Murray-Darling-Barker Basin come out of those lake systems. The 600 kilometres from Menindee Lakes to Wentworth was effectively the nursery of the whole Murray-Darling-Barker Basin. I remember Barry O'Sullivan, Senator Barry O'Sullivan, came down one time and he was talking um, and he said, oh, they're not coming up to bloody Queensland. And we had a fish ecologist beside him saying, I did my PhD on it 20 years ago. You do the DNA within the ears of fish 
Senator O'Sullivan, every fish you see in Queensland has come out of this Manini Lake system. So it, it, it's just horrible. So they scoop up as many as they can. I remember um, Tandow Cotton, which is now, well, that's a story onto its own, but um, that was a, yeah, uh, another day. But um, they used to flush out water. When there was water coming down the river, they'd flush out their stale water, deoxygenated chemicals and everything. And I remember seeing the river littered with fish, you know, 80-year-old fish, probably, you know, a kilometre of that. And that was seven or eight years ago. So this is nothing new. Um, what we need to do is water tests within Queensland and New South Wales should be conducted randomly throughout the catchment, especially in the northern part. But when anybody reduces any residues back into the river system, then conceivably water should be tested immediately. And that's the thing. You've got two government departments in New South Wales doing water testing, but they don't test on residues or chemicals. What the hell are you testing? Oh, oxygen. Yeah, but shouldn't you test contaminants? Isn't that important? Because, as I said, going back to Adelaide, 40% of your long-term water supply is what comes down the Darling Barker. And please, uh, people like to try and say, oh, the Darling Barker went dry regularly. No, it didn't. Last week, the Darling Barker had its worst day since White Man got here and watched 30 million fish die. The same week, the new Premier, who'd only been two days in the job, came out from Sydney to and brought out three of the four most powerful people in water to come and talk to us. Um, look, the future's bright for the first time in decades. So please, listeners, science, technology and honest policing of the river system can bring this river system back to health, and that's what we need going forward. So it's not, it's not all doom and gloom. I've never been more optimistic in my lifetime than what I've seen in the last week uh, with what's going to happen both state and federally in water. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you to you, Rob. Thank you for everything that you have done and good to hear the good news now. Well, that was truly interesting, fellas. There was so much there to unpack and think about when we're talking about the Darling River and the... Um, Uh, the winding back of the disgusting things that happened during the Liberal National Government under several premiers, but mostly the Morrison government. But things are in the change now, and uh, we'll be watching closely. We'll have Rob back on for sure. Um, we'll be watching closely, and uh, from now on, with the change of governments, we all have the opportunity to be the difference. Exactly. Be the difference. That difference. Be the difference I know the world's gone mad It's true Be the difference Many people say that Sweden is just a small country and it doesn't matter what we do. But I've learned that you are never too small to make a difference. And if a few children can get headlines all over the world just by not going to school, then imagine what we could all do together if we really wanted to. A few months ago, NASA announced that we have officially crossed a climate tipping point. They said that the major West Antarctic ice sheets are collapsing and their loss is, quote, unstoppable. 
This is going to lead to 10 feet of sea level rise over the next few hundred years. And when combined with sea level rise from other sources, such as the melting of the Greenland ice sheet, this is going to result in 15 feet of sea level rise in the next 100 to 300 years. This means that the bottom third of Florida and many island nations and coastal cities are going to be submerged. This is a slow-moving tipping point, but it's still a tipping point. We can reduce our emissions and slow down sea level rise, but we can't stop it. And there are many other climate tipping points, potential climate tipping points, that could lead to a climate system spiraling out of control of our children. So it really makes sense to address the problem now and try to stop that. So one thing that most people don't understand is that CO2 is unlike all other kinds of pollution. For example, if you have a river that's polluted by industrial runoff, you can eventually shut down the factory causing the pollution and take some other steps. And then in a little while, the water will be clean enough to go fishing and swimming again. But CO2 lasts in the atmosphere for hundreds to thousands of years. So things don't get better when you finally stop emitting it. That's why it is so important for us to immediately begin reducing global emissions. If we start now, the outcome will be very different than if we start 10 years from now. Now, we've known about the dangers of climate change for many decades, and yet we've done virtually nothing to stop it. Why is that? Well, there's lots of reasons. But one of them is that our brains are programmed to focus on potential threats only if they have certain characteristics. We focus on threats that have one or more threat indicators. So imagine you're standing on the savanna and a lion shows up in front of you. And let's compare that to the threat of climate change. So we respond to threats that are visible. There's the lion. Climate change is invisible. In fact, it's a beautiful day today. We respond to threats that have historical precedence. The lion ate your brother last week, so now you know to watch out for lions. Uh, climate change hasn't happened before in human memory. We respond to threats that are immediate. There's the lion. You have to act right now. Climate change is drawn out over years, decades, even centuries. Direct personal impacts. The lion is coming after you. Climate change might hurt your children or other people. Simple causality. The lion is going to eat you, and you're going to be dead. Very simple. <laughs> With climate change, it involves parts per million, methane, ice sheet instability, and all this kind of stuff that's kind of complicated. Caused by an enemy. In this case, the lion. But climate change is caused by all of us. Now, to see how important this one is, imagine that we find out tomorrow that all the excess CO2 in the world is being released by Al-Qaeda in order to destabilize the climate. Now, ask yourself, would we then do something about it? Of course we would. Now, even though we have these limitations, we can overcome them. And besides, climate change is becoming more visible and more immediate every day. Now, there's other ways that we ignore climate change. One of them is that we think of it as a distant environmental problem. I tell people that climate change is an environmental problem like World War II was an environmental problem. 
World War II was an enormous environmental problem. But people also realized that it was a national security problem, an economic problem, a health problem, a, a human rights problem, and even a threat to their own families. Society also conspires to suppress the discussion of climate change. As someone who talks about climate change a lot, I can vouch for this. In fact, someone once said that talking about climate change is like flatulence at a cocktail party. <laughs> and like the crowd waiting for the bus, we wait for someone else to act. But this bus is too big. We all need to act. 